five, four, three, two, one. Let's go. Diary of a Kitty Warrior. Sharing faith, knowledge, hope, and love. Hi, and welcome to Diary of a Kidney Warrior podcast. My name is Dee Moore, and I am a stage four kidney warrior. This podcast is dedicated to encourage, educate, and inspire as we explore all aspects of kidney disease, chronic illnesses, and health. If you have any questions or ideas for topics you would like me to cover, please get in contact with me on social media using the handle Diary of a Kidney Warrior. Hi listeners and welcome to Diary of a Kidney Warrior podcast. This episode's going to be a little bit different today and today is the 28th episode of the podcast and I would like to thank everybody that has been there and supporting the podcast that's listened from episode one or joined this journey in later episodes. Thank you for your continued support and for my listeners around the world, thank you all for being there with me and yes, please do continue with me on this journey. This episode, I wanted to talk about my story before my CKD story and this is the story of how I became a warrior and formed the foundation of why I do what I do in terms of kidney health advocacy and why I am so passionate about sharing knowledge, about raising awareness and about empowerment. This is a deeply personal story for me and is a story about one of the most traumatic experiences of my life. But I want to share this story because I really feel that it's important and that hopefully by sharing this story, it will empower and help other people. My story starts during my first pregnancy. I was studying at the time in my day job. I'm not sure if people know, but in my day job, I work for the National Health Service and At that time, I was studying a degree in speech and language therapy, training to be a speech therapist, and I was on my course, and um, I became pregnant at that time, and in the beginning, everything was fine, you know, I was really happy to be expecting my first child, and I was looking forward to, I had this thing in my mind that my baby was due in July and I was like, yep, I'm going to have my baby and then return back to study later on in that, that academic year. So everything, as I said, started completely normally. And then, you know, I didn't even have any morning sickness or anything like that. Um, but then about 20 weeks into my pregnancy, I started to have headaches Now it kind of started slowly, it was like a headache, I kind of brushed it off and ignored the headache. But then these headaches started to increase in frequency and so um, I told my obstetrician at the hospital and she pretty much just brushed it off and just said, oh it's because you're studying, Um, it's stress, don't worry about it, it's fine. 
But the headaches continued and continued until they got worse and worse and worse. And again, I reported this to my obstetrician at the hospital and nothing was done really. She just said, oh, it's just stress um, and referred me to massage therapy. But I knew that something wasn't right. I just knew. And the headaches got worse and worse until I started to really I couldn't understand what people were saying to me I couldn't take in information I felt confused I woke up in the morning with a headache I went to sleep with a headache if I was lying down and I I sat up too quickly it would my head would be pounding like it was going to explode it was um it was debilitating headaches and I kept complaining, you know, to the obstetrician, to the hospital, and nothing was done. And this continued for approximately eight weeks that I was going through this every single day of these chronic headaches. It was absolutely awful. And then suddenly, one day, the headaches stopped. And I thought, oh, great, I'm, you know, everything's great, everything's back to normal. But then I remember sitting in the lecture theatre and saying to my friend, it, it seems really bright in here, like, my eyes, like, my eyes were really sensitive. And she was like, there's nothing wrong with the with the light, what you're talking about. And I just kind of was like, okay. But then I started to go blind and my vision started to deteriorate um quite rapidly and again went to the the hospital and nothing was done um so I I kept turning up at the hospital again and again and again and the most that they did was have me wait around for hours and put me on a tracer and that was it no one did anything in terms of blood tests or testing wires anything nothing was done and I was convinced at this point in time that I was leaking amniotic fluid and again turning up at the hospital and saying something is wrong, something is wrong, nothing was done, wasn't listened to. So because I couldn't see, my eyesight was getting worse and at this point, you know, I I, I couldn't see anything that was on the boards at uni um, when it came to typing up my birth plan and things like that, I remember having to sit literally with my face against the screen, turning my head to the side as I was typing my birth plan. And I just thought, you know what, let me go and see an optician. So I made an appointment, went to see my optician. He took a look at my eyes and he said that there's nothing wrong with your actual eyes. Your eyeballs are healthy, Um I can't explain why you can't see properly. You know, sometimes things happen in pregnancy, but I can't see a reason why you can't see. So for me, this was an absolute red flag because if you're saying there's nothing wrong with my actual eyes and I can't see, then something must be wrong. Something must be seriously wrong. And so I left from the opticians and I went straight to my GP and I remember I actually had an appointment that day, but I wanted to see the optician first. And 
like when I arrived, the secretary said, "Oh, you're too late for your appointment." And I and I said to her, "I am not leaving until I see a GP today." And um, and so I was able to see my GP that day. And when I told him everything that had happened with the headaches and now that you know I could couldn't see properly, he said that doesn't sound right. And he was the first person in all those months that had said anything like that to me. And so he referred me to the ophthalmology at the hospital. And my appointment was the following week on the Wednesday. And by this time, I couldn't drive. My eyesight was just was too bad. And I had to be, you know, driven to the hospital and um, I just remember attending this appointment and the nurse you know sat me in front of the letter board and she said cover one eye and tell me what you see and I covered one eye and immediately half of the letter board disappeared and I jumped back in my seat in shock I was just absolutely scared out of my mind like what on earth and then the same thing happened when I covered the other eye and looked at the letterboard and at this point I knew something was seriously seriously wrong the ophthalmologist told me that he didn't know what was wrong with me and so he said that he's going to refer me on to a consultant and he said that if something was wrong with his eyes, he would want to see this consultant. So two days later, I went along to ophthalmology. So at this point, I was now 38 weeks into my pregnancy. And ophthalmology did a battery of tests. And in all of the tests, I could only see half of everything. And then finally, when I went to the consultant, he he told me to cover one eye and then he said, look at my eye. And when I looked, I, cu- I couldn't see his eye. His eye was completely fuzzed out. And, you know, then I was like in bits at this point. And he said, uh, he took out a, a coloured pin. It was a red pin. And he moved it around and he said, what colour is the pin? And the pin changed in colour from red to green to brown to red. It it kept changing colour. And um, I just remember him putting this pin away and pausing. And then he said to me, I think you have a tumour. And if I'm right then we have to get baby out and we have to operate on you or you will die. And I was completely devastated. I just was filled with fear of anger and anxiousness and just every emotion hit me like a ton of bricks and... I just 
couldn't believe that for all these months that I'd been saying something was wrong and I hadn't been listened to. And now I was in this position of potentially losing my life or my or even my child. I didn't know what was going to happen. And I just couldn't believe it. I was in complete shock. He said that I would need to have an MRI scan to confirm whether he was correct. And so I said, can we do this now? And so he arranged for me to have the MRI scan. And he said that he would come over and meet me after the scan for the results. So I went along. My mother was with me at the time. We went along for the MRI scan. And to this day, I don't know how I did it. Because if you've ever had an MRI scan, you've got to lie on your back completely still. Um, for usually half an hour to 45 minutes while the scan is, you know, doing. And um, I don't know how I did it because lying on your back when you're pregnant is really, really difficult. And I was heavily pregnant at this point in time. and But I managed to stay still. And I don't even know what was going through my mind at this point. I think at this point I had checked out. I was somewhere else. And I got through the scan and then the ophthalmologist um, came and put the scan result on the screen, the image on the screen. And he said, we're going to have to admit you. I just couldn't believe it. I was just like, oh my goodness. And so... We um we went over to the other hospital. So this was a different hospital to the original hospital. And I was just absolutely devastated. We went to the waiting area and this wasn't a hospital that I was familiar with. So I didn't know any of the staff or where to go or what to do. So... My mother and I, we we sat and we waited for quite a while and I was just sitting there in complete shock, just not knowing what to think or what to do. And at this point, it was now the evening. I hadn't even called my husband and told him anything. I was just completely bewildered and spaced out. And I sat there and a midwife came up to me and she said, you don't look very happy, so here's a leaflet so that you can make a complaint. And I looked at her and I was like, what? Like, she didn't take the time to ask me anything or inquire as to why I look that way. She just made an assumption and just handed me this leaflet. And I just was like, I just couldn't believe it. We waited for, I don't know how long before we were taken to a room and then um, the the doctor came to see me and he said that um, he'll do a scan to check the baby. So he, he did a scan and um, 
he said that the fluid is dangerously low around the baby. So baby needs to come out. And again, I was filled with anger because this was something that I had in my gut. I just knew that I was leaking fluid and to have this now confirmed and to to know that it was dangerously low around my baby. I was just beside myself at this point with anger and all these different emotions. I realised at this point that I hadn't called my husband. I called him and he at this point was beside himself with worry because he didn't know what was happening and I insisted on on going home and collecting my things and explaining to him what had happened. So I was allowed to do that, literally go home, collect my stuff, come back. And I went home, got my things, like explained everything to my husband. And I just, just I was just like, I, just, I don't want anyone to know. I just, I don't want anyone to know I'm sick. I just, I just had this overwhelming like need to just keep it private. I just didn't want anyone to know. And I returned back to the hospital and I was there that night and just not knowing what was going to happen. So this was the Friday. So then the Saturday morning, this was when the ball just started rolling and rolling very quickly. And so the first team, literally team of doctors came to see me and I told that team my story, another team came to see me, another team came to see me. And so I'm repeating my story again and again. Everybody's kind of looking at me as this strange case and nobody is kind of giving me any information or answers and I don't know what is going on. And then another team came to see me and then when they had finished their consultation with me, I could hear these doctors having a discussion and they said in litigation can we justify how can we justify inducing this this patient and I couldn't believe that they were having that conversation in earshot of myself and I don't know whether a nurse had told them to move on or or what was said but then they moved and so there was this discussion and debate as to how I was able to have my child, was I able to push, was it too much pressure on my brain, Um, would they have to do a C-section or could I do a vaginal delivery and if so, was it too much pressure to push, would they have to use forceps or ventus, there was this debate as to how I should have my baby and then they decided that what they would do was induce me, I would have a specific period of time in which to deliver my baby and then if the baby wasn't born in this set time then they would do a c-section and they would do the surgery on my brain at the same time and I didn't want that so I was keen to try and have a vaginal delivery and so um you know I I said yeah I'll I'll do it this way And so um, I was induced and um, the process of um, induction, when you're not in labour, when you're not dilated, when you're you're not having contractions, 
is a very painful thing because your body has been literally shocked into, you know, labor. It's a, it's a false labor, so to speak. And, um, I found the process very, very difficult and the internals I found very painful. And I had a midwife from a certain point in my labor, I had a midwife with me the whole time. And so I had different midwives with me during my labor and different experiences. I had one midwife who during when she was doing an internal on myself, she complained that I was hurting her when she was doing the internal on me. And I couldn't believe that she said this to me. I was I was like, wow. And um fortunately, um she went, you know, and another midwife who was compassionate and caring took over. I got to the point where the deadline for me to have my baby came to an end. And at this point, I was still three centimetres dilated. And the doctor came and he said, I'll give her another hour. I was so grateful for that because I thought I didn't go through all of this to just have a C-section, you know, and I certainly didn't want to have the surgery at the same time because I was worried about being able to bond with my baby. Um, And so fortunately, my son was born within that hour. And so my son was, was now born, but I couldn't see him. I couldn't see his face properly. And I remember sitting there and kind of turning him around, like turning him like really close to my eyes to try and see his face because I couldn't see him. And um, I remember upgrading my phone just before then so that I had a camera phone. And I just remember taking loads and loads of photos of him um, just so that I could try and capture his face. And it was just such mixed emotions for me because for me this should be the happiest day of my life I'm I'm a mother for the first time having my first child and this should be the happiest day of my life but simultaneously I'm fighting for my life and my life is on the line and I don't even know if I'm going to be here to take care of this baby and raise this baby and yeah, well, it was a real struggle for me. I was so angry that the joy of having my baby, it felt like it had been stolen from me. And it was the the Sunday that he was actually born. And then the next day, the, um, the neuro doctors came to see me. And... Um, they explained to me about the surgery and they explained to me the risks of the surgery and every sentence ended with you could die so it's so it was like you could have a stroke on the operating table and die you could leak brain fluid and die and every sentence ended with you know you could die and you could get an infection and you could die. There was just all these different um, risks 
that were associated with the surgery. And I, I just couldn't like, I don't know. I just was like, at this point, it was just like, I just do the surgery. You know, I just, I, I, I couldn't even like, I just was like, just do the surgery. I signed everything off. And then the next day, um, and um, when the doctors came to see me as well, there was a student who asked if she could observe my surgery. And I said, yeah, that's fine. And then the next day, the Tuesday morning, I'd had my breakfast and everything. And then the nurse came and told me, you're going to have your surgery today. And this came as a shock. I was like, oh, my gosh, I've, I've had my breakfast. And she was like, no, it's fine kind of thing. And I was like, oh, my goodness. So then I was taken to another hospital for the surgery. And it was quite a daunting prospect because that part of the hospital had actually been closed due um, due to um like some kind of infection and someone had passed and so it had been closed and different things had happened and so I was brought to this certain section of the hospital for my surgery and I remember um, seeing the neuro team and each person introducing themselves to me individually and telling me what they would be doing during the surgery. And um, so... I kind of looked at each person. I couldn't really see anybody's face, but you know, I looked at each person, and then, um, you know, then I was given the anaesthetic and had my surgery. I woke up, and I just remember my eyes being covered. I couldn't see, and I just kind of. It was like a couldn't a sudden kind of wake. I started kind of signing, like because um, I'm a signer. I, I'm a BSL and Makaton signer, and I was signing, but no one understood what I was signing. So I kind of grabbed someone's hand, and then I was spelling out the letter in the hand, and they kind of didn't quite get what I was spelling, and then I spelt again, and then she realised, and she said, "Oh, who am I?" and she said, "I'm I'm the student," and she goes, "Um, your surgery went really really well," and this that and the other and and um, gave me some reassurance and um, after I'd recovered a bit more then I was moved back to the hospital where I had my baby and I was put into a labour room and I was there by myself one-to-one with a nurse designated nurse and I remember that night feeling the lowest I've ever felt in my life. And in my mind, I felt like if I fell asleep, I would die. And so I just kept talking. And the nurse that was with me, and I'm going to share her name. Her name was Louise. The nurse that was with me was just so gentle and so caring and so compassionate. And she just listened as I spoke. And she just comforted me. And just supported me through this incredibly low time for me. And when when it was the morning and um, and then there was a handover to another nurse. She had a completely different kind of um, personality. So it was like a very gentle, 
nurse through the night, very calming. And then the nurse in the morning was, hello, how are you? Kind of thing, really upbeat and really uplifted um, my my spirit. And um, it was exactly what I needed. I needed that quietness and stillness during the night. And I needed that bright uplift in the morning. And I will share the name of the second nurse. Her name was Chaw. And she was just so amazing, just so warm, so friendly and took over caring for me. And my husband shared with me later that when I came back from surgery, I looked like I'd been in a boxing match. My my eyes were like severely bruised. My face was really, really swollen. And I remember the staff kind of looking. I didn't know why they were looking at me like that, but now I know it's because I was so swollen. But the the swelling had kind of gone down a bit. And I remember the staff actually came to like do a bed bath and I... And I, they were quite surprised that I was kind of, no, I'm fine, I can do this. And, you know, was doing things for myself. And um, I wanted my son, um, you know, to be with me as much as I could. And, you know, they they would bring him and put him on me. And I just wanted to have as much time with him as possible because, again, I was worried about that I wouldn't bond with him because I couldn't see him and, and, and all the rest of it. And I was in the hospital for a total of of two weeks. That was a, a varied experience of, of being in the hospital, different staff, some good care and some not so good. And we were discharged from the hospital and went home and ended up back in the hospital because... My my son hadn't fed well. You know, I was trying to so desperately to breastfeed and and capture something, some kind of normality out of the situation, but I just couldn't produce enough. Um, and he, you know, he had lost weight and ended up back in the hospital. Came back out the hospital and just switched completely over to bottle feeding because it it just wasn't possible. And that was another blow for me because breastfeeding was something that I'd always wanted to be able to do for my children. And no, it just wasn't possible. The doctors told me that because of the damage to my pituitary, because what um, was explained to me as well was that basically when I became pregnant for an unknown reason, maybe autoimmune, my body attacked my pituitary gland and it had expanded so big that it was crushing my optic nerves and this is what was causing my you know me to go blind and so when they did the surgery they removed part of my pituitary gland and so they were saying because of the damage that I was effectively infertile I was sterile and that if I was to have children in the future I would need treatment to stimulate my ovaries to fall pregnant again. So it came as quite a shock when I immediately fell pregnant again. And I I knew I knew that I was pregnant and very early on into my pregnancy and I went along to the family planning clinic to confirm whether I was pregnant or not. And we went along and the doctor was like, 
when was your last period this that and the other and I I explained to her that you know it was literally like weeks after having my son that that I was there and hadn't had a period yet and you know and a proper cycle and all the rest of it and she was kind of looking at me as if to say well why are you here and I explained to her my situation and she she did an internal scan on me which confirmed that I was indeed pregnant and I was just like overwhelmed with like oh my goodness you know I'm happy to be pregnant but I was scared is this going to turn you know this pregnancy going to go down the same road I was just terrified to be honest I left that appointment and went home and and then it was like oh my goodness what's going to happen now so I went to my GP and his response was really funny actually when I said I'm pregnant and he was like again already and I was like yes again already and um so I had been told by um my neurosurgeon that you know if anything had happened in the future contact his secretary and make an appointment and he will see me so I had that reassurance that you know anything I will I will check it out with my doctors so eight weeks into this pregnancy the headache started again I went straight to the hospital where I had my my son and they were kind of bewildered as to why I was turning up there because I had headaches and I explained to them, you know, the significance of headaches for me. I spent the night there, was given paracetamol and not much else. I left there not having received much help. Um, and then the headaches got worse and worse until I remember being in the fetal position on my my settee and my friend had come to see me at that that day and I was just I had my head down and I was just like I was just in pain and she was like she was like you know you need to get yourself checked out what's going on and I said you know I explained to her at at this point that I had rang up the hospital to see the the surgeon that had told me to ring his secretary if anything and she had refused to give me an appointment and she said you know what just turn up at the hospital so I said, you know what, that's what I'm going to do. And that's what I did. And I remember marching, <laughs> marching down this corridor. And who did I walk into? But the very same doctor that I went there to see. And he was walking up the corridor. And I remember him having these notes in his hands. And me marching up and going, I can't believe it's you. And your secretary will give me an appointment. And he goes, don't worry. He goes, I will see you. Just go downstairs and tell them that I will see you. I'll see you shortly. And so I went downstairs, explained to them, and then he he came to see me and he had my notes. And I remember him opening up my notes and he had his pen in his hand and he was saying, oh, yes. And he was like, oh, yes, have your, have your periods come back and blah, blah, blah. And I said, oh, you don't know why I'm here, do you? And he was like, why are you here? And I said, I'm pregnant. And I remember the look of absolute shock on his face he put his pen down and he was in absolute shock and then I explained to him that the headaches were happening again and he was saying that he would have to you know order an MRI scan and that I would have to wait until I was three months into the pregnancy before I could have this scan and so I felt like finally you know okay I was on the track to 
getting things sorted. And so I left that appointment and um, I was waiting to get confirmation as to when I was going to get my MRI scan. And I remember, I don't know how long I waited, but didn't hear anything. And so I chased it up. And when I rang up, the person I spoke to, they said, oh, you've been you've been put on the normal waiting list for the MRI. And I said, well, how long is that? And she said, six months. I said, I could be dead by then. I need an emergency MRI appointment. And yeah, so I was given an emergency MRI scan. And I remember going for the scan and I had an, an appointment for my pregnancy on the same day. And I remember having the scan, having some blood t- tests done, and I was still on the hospital grounds when I got a phone call saying, go to your GP, we've ordered a prescription, you need to start this medication now because your cortisol levels are so low you could just drop dead. And I was just like, oh my goodness. So the scan revealed that my pituitary was bulky, that's how they described it, and so... The pregnancy was going down the same road as the first pregnancy. And so what they did was they then put me on heavy-duty steroids treatment. And I remember swelling up so big. And, um, like, if you put your finger in my like, on my leg, it would stay indented. That's how swollen I was. But the steroids kept everything kind of stable. And so what they then did was they... I had my eyes tested every single week and that was kind of the marker of whether things were remaining stable or getting worse. And alongside this, I was having regular appointments with my with the baby doctors, with the obstetricians, and they were like saying, oh, there's a chance that the baby might not grow. And so I was having a lot of appointments. So in some weeks I was having, you know, neurology appointments, obstetrician, ophthalmology, um, you know, endocrinology. There was just all these different appointments that I was um, attending and it was really, really tough. And, you know, from the moment really that I found out I was pregnant until I, I eventually gave birth, it was a stressful time for me. And they said, you know, if we can get you to 20 weeks, if we can get you to 24 weeks, if we can get you to X amount of weeks and then I was scheduled to be um, induced at 37 weeks. And um, by this time, like I said, I you know, it was tough, but I got through it and I was induced at 37 weeks and my son was born, my second son was born, and he was actually £7.5, so um, he was induced three weeks early and was still seven pounds five. So he was a healthy weight and very, very long. And actually, he's actually coming up to 17 years old now and he's six foot four. So, yes, he not only grew, but he grew very, very tall. <laughs> so these were my experiences during my two pregnancies. And I can say that I'm still here because of my strength of character that I was determined to get to the bottom of what was going on. I knew deep inside me that something was not right. And 
despite the incompetence and negligence of some bad medical staff, but also because of the care and compassion and good treatment of good medical staff. This is why, you know, I'm I'm still here. The support from my family and, you know, wider community, their prayers and encouragement and, you know, everything that carried me during that time, I'm still here. And I'm very aware that there are people who, when they're told something, they just accept it, they don't question it, or they don't feel that they can question it and because they don't have that confidence. And the sad thing is maybe some of these individuals are no longer with us. And that is a very sad reality. And so this is why I am so passionate and so dedicated to raising awareness and empowering people with the confidence to be their own health manager. Because the reality is you are the common denominator at every single one of your medical appointments. You are the only person who is at every single one of them. Things can be missed and slip through the net. Unfortunately, human error does take place. And so you're the consistent entity. So you must be your own health manager. And it isn't about being difficult or being awkward or being demanding but it's about being an active part of your care. I encourage you, whoever you are, whoever you are going to see as part of your medical care, I encourage you to ask questions, especially when you don't understand something. Ask the question, say you don't understand. That person that you're going to see is there for your care, is there to take care of you. If you don't understand something, tell them you don't understand and ask them to explain it again. Write things down. If you're worried that you might forget something, write your question down before you go to your appointment so that you don't miss anything. And write down the things that they tell you so that you don't forget. If they say to you that you are due to have an appointment or a letter within a certain period of time, mark that in your diary so that if it doesn't happen, you can do the follow-up phone call and say, I was supposed to have this appointment, it hasn't come through. Check things up, follow things up. Empower yourself with your care. I truly believe that working with clinicians, despite Everything that I have gone through, I truly believe that working with clinicians and listening to each other is what's going to bring about the best care for patients. And I wrote online, I wrote a post and I said that every step that a patient and clinician take towards each other is a step in the right direction. And I really believe that this is the truth and the way forward. And I know that there are clinicians that are listening, that are taking on board patient experience and using that to shape patient care for the better. And I really believe that this is the way forward. So this is my story that I wanted to share so that you understand why 
I'm doing what I'm doing with this podcast. As I've said from the beginning, I want to share faith, knowledge, hope and love. I want you to have the faith and the hope that you can thrive despite and through your diagnosis. Whatever your diagnosis is, you can have quality of life. You can be empowered to live a full life, no matter what your diagnosis is. It starts with making the choice to choose to live, to fight for your health, to do everything that you can do to empower yourself with knowledge so that you can thrive. And this is my encouragement to you, the listener. Choose to live. Choose to live. Thank you for listening to Diary of a Kidney Warrior podcast. And don't forget that you can contact me on social media using the handle Diary of a Kidney Warrior. Please do subscribe to the podcast and please do tell a friend. New episodes of this podcast are released every Monday. Until next time, take care and choose to live. Diary of a Kidney Warrior. Sharing faith, knowledge, hope and love.